Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Hear now God's Word. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And thus far the reading of God's Word, and all God's people said, I want to focus today on verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. We sure do hate that word, submission. It's one thing to have to submit to authority, but this text, as the Bible often does, takes it much further. We're called to actually submit to one another. Now that's pretty humbling. This, of course, strikes at the very heart of our problems, and it points to the remedy to our problems. But that's why the gospel is good news. It humbles us before it exalts us. God puts us in a low place in order to get our attention, in order to teach us that we are nothing without him, and that the way up is first down. So this statement comes as a transition between what has just been said about being filled with the Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, coming under His influence, and what is going to come next, which has to do with our various relationships in in the family and in the world. And so this phrase sits right in the middle of that. The Holy Spirit is necessary because we can't possibly do what is called for without Him empowering us to do that work within us. In other words, this is a supernatural work. As the fruit of the Spirit is manifest, it will clearly be seen in how we deal with one another. In other words, sometimes we might ask the question, am I filled with the Spirit? And, and there's a tendency in some circles maybe to kind of look inside, looking for something. No, look outside, look next to you, look at the people around you, you're going to see whether or not you're filled with the Spirit by how you're having, how your relationships are. That's where it's going to show up primarily. This is how we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it is also how we love our neighbors as ourselves. Submission is an act of love. It just kind of occurred to me this morning as I was thinking about this and got my notes back out. Why is that? Why is submission an act of love? Now, I'm not talking about subjugation where we put somebody down or hold them down or force them to do something. But the kind of submission the Bible is talking about is a picture of the love of God, of an act of love. And we know that submission is an act of love because Jesus willingly came, under, came into submission under the Father and by, let's think of it this way again, submission it means to come under, sub-mission, to come under the mission. Jesus came under the mission of the Father. 
He submitted to the Father's will. He gave Himself for His bride and for the sake of the mission. It was an act of sacrifice, an act of love. This leads us to another important point about mutual submission, and that is that even those who are in positions of authority must live in submission. How can that be? We often think of, in terms of hierarchy, that those who are further down the hierarchical chain, if you will, they're in submission, but the people at the top are not, but that's not true. The Bible's instruction on this says even those who are at the top are still in submission. Certainly, we're all in submission to God, but even in this text, it's saying that all of us, even those who are in positions of leadership, those who've been given responsibility to care for and to oversee, they too submit themselves even to those that they're caring for. Even their ruling, you see, comes under the mission. I'm not ruling for myself. I'm ruling for the mission. I'm, that's my role. That's my job. That's my duty. They serve, if, if they're true Biblical leaders, like Jesus, they serve those whom they are over. That's an act of submission. They always work for the good. They always work for the good of the mission itself. So what does mutual submission look like? In a military unit, individuals find their identity in relationship to the whole. The first thing... Uh, they're going to do in basic training is strip you of your individual identity to uh, build you back up as a part of a unit. As a member of the unit, they, be- they come under the instruction and command of the officer in charge, and together this group of individuals begin to act as one. Isn't that what Jesus prayed in John 17? Father, I pray that they, my people, would be one, even as you and I are one. And so when a person enlists in the military, they relinquish their individual right to determine their own activity in life. They are told where to be and what to do, and when to do it, and how to do it. They are now under authority, and if they act on their own, that is, independently of others, they will be found guilty of insubordination. Likewise, we are members of one another. We are members of a unit of a unity, of a communion, the body of Christ, and we are no longer our own. To be in submission means that we come under this mission. We are no longer thoughtless. We're not just going through life doing our own thing. We are now governed by the truth. We're wise, or as Paul puts it in this same chapter, verse 17, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That becomes our mission. A wise person thinks. He looks before he leaps. He thinks before he speaks, because he considers others. That's what submission is about. What I say impacts other people. What I do impacts others, and now I have to think about that. I don't get to just blurt out. I don't get to just do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. And so most importantly, this submission by its very nature cannot be selfish. Selfish people only think about themselves, which means they are not thinking. 
They are acting like animals. Self or self selfishness, as we've said before, is the root cause of all of our problems. We have turned everyone to his own way, Isaiah says. Isn't that the source of all the problems at your house? Everyone wants their own way. And this selfish self not only has opinions, it often goes a step further and becomes opinionated. That is, obstinate or conceited with regard to the merit of one's own opinions. It is not so much that the opinionated person, it's not so much what they believe as it is the fact that this person believes it. The fact that I believe it makes it something I'm ready to fight over and defend. It's not a pursuit of the truth. It's a pursuit of me being right. Once again, he looks to himself. He can't possibly be wrong. It is what I believe that matters the most. The opinionated people don't listen to others, and they are impatient with other perspectives. They have to have the last word. This is because they are self-centered, which is another way of saying immature. The person who is not under the control of the Holy Spirit is not in control at all. It's like the person drunk with wine. They're out of control. They are often angry and volatile, easily upset, because their sense of self, their insecurity, everything's a threat to them. It's not uncommon for threats from people who are in this situation when it is allowed to, to go unchecked to, uh, to threaten to quit. If I can't have it my way, then I don't want to participate at all. I'll just quit. I'm not going to go to that. I'm not going to go. They don't do it the way I think it should be done, so I'll just stay home. Or I'll quit that organization. Or I'll quit the team. Or I'll stop going to that church. All kinds of ways this gets expressed. Or I'll just go to my room. I'll just get away from all you people over here in the house, and I'll go be by myself. The very first thing, the very first thing the Holy Spirit does is He reduces us to the same level. He convicts us of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so when that happens, the Christian comes to see that whatever he has is a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who makes you to differ from another? We could look at all the folks in this room. What makes us different? What makes us look different, act different? All the various gifts and abilities and inabilities that we have, what makes us differ? Paul says, and what do you have that you didn't receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? If I can paraphrase, if it's a gift, why are you bragging about something that was given to you? You didn't give it to yourself. So you've got a brain. Where did you get it? Did you make it? 
Did you create it? Oh, and you're so good looking. Did you produce that all by yourself? That perfect nose? That lovely hair? Those big brown eyes? And perhaps you're proud of your writing or your art or your music or your athletic ability or some other talent. Well, aren't you something? No, you're not. The very moment that you realize that everything you have is a gift, then you'll stop boasting. And all of your cool shaming at school will disappear. You'll stop being arrogant and proud and foolish and you'll give thanks to God and you will be humble and grateful. By the way, whatever you've been given can be taken away in a heartbeat. And you will gladly submit to others who you need or who you will need because guess what? All of the other people around you are gifts from God also. The world has an opposite approach. They grade and reward people based on these very things. But God is no respecter of persons. Samuel, remember, looked upon Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, when Jesse's sons were called and God was going to anoint a king. And Samuel's eyes fell upon Eliab because he was tall and muscular and handsome. And God pointed in a very different direction. He said to Samuel, For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Some of you perhaps find yourself up on a perch, looking down on others. Maybe you do that at school. That kid in your class that annoys you, that is nerdy or not as cool as you are, or somebody at work, or one of your neighbors, or somebody even in your own family. Our sinful problem is that we can only see a few inches in front of us, and we think our little hill is a mile high. You sit on your little molehill, turned into a mountain, and all you can see is all the little people beneath you. Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Perhaps you ought to look up to God who is looking down on you and then you'll realize that you're nothing. If you're in Christ, then you are one of the parts, one of the members of his body. And you're no longer your own. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually, parts individually. And what's important is not that you're a part, but that you are a part of a whole. You need everybody else and you need even all the unseemly parts. When we come to see that it's the whole that matters most, then we are on our way to solving our primary problem of selfishness.
Sometimes I think we're kind of like we're a spark plug. Spark plugs are pretty neat. It's intricate parts, engineered very lovely, very much precision. And they do a very important job, but they cannot do anything by themselves. They are worthless. They're a piece of ceramic and metal, and that's it. And they perform no function whatsoever by themselves. When we come to see that it's the whole that matters, as I said, we're on our way to solving our primary problem of selfishness. Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit look at the church very differently. You see, there are some who come to church to get something for themselves. What's in it for me? I can take it or leave it. But when a person comes to perceive what God has done by engrafting them, these nobodies, these this, this spark plug that's laying on a table has now been plugged in, plugged into where it belongs and now works and functions alongside of all the other parts to make it useful and glorious. When they come to see that they, that they have become little parts of the whole, everything changes. The man in the army is not fighting for himself, but for his country. Now, I mentioned earlier the submission, that submission is an act of love, and thus we all, regardless of our positions, are called to submit to one another. This is a person who is ready to even suffer injustice, if necessary, for the sake of the truth, for the sake of the mission, and for the sake of the body. Paul puts it this way in a familiar passage, Passage you've heard many times, but think, think about it in this context. I mean, again, I said submission and love. Submission is an act of love. And what does he say? Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. This is exactly what Paul means when he tells us to submit to one another in the fear of God. The only person who can do this is the one who is filled with the Holy Spirit because that's who displays, that's the person who displays the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are all, all the fruit of submission. That's what submission looks like. If you're full, if you're full of that, the fruit of the Spirit, then I can promise you this, your troubles, whatever they are, will soon diminish. You will be the kind of person who, uh, who readily submits, willing and voluntarily, always for the sake of others and for the sake of the kingdom of God. In this phrase, in this phrase the, last, excuse me, the last phrase here is that we're to submit to one another, how? In the fear of God. In this phrase, we are told exactly how and why we are to submit ourselves to one another. This is what motivates us to submit to one another. 
Failure to submit is an indication of a lack of, fear, of the fear of God. We don't respect God. If we did, we'd, we would submit to one another. We would sacrifice for one another. We would love one another. It's another way of saying that God, uh, when we don't do this, when I say I'm not going to submit to you, I'm not going to submit to my wife or my children, I'm not going to put them first because I'm going to put me first at their expense. When I say that, what I'm saying is, God, you are not going to tell me what to do. Failure to submit is an indication of a lack of the fear of God. Another way of saying, again, God's not going to tell me what to do, which puts us back at the very place where all the trouble started. In John 13:1, we have a beautiful illustration of this kind of submission. Where we read of Jesus having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is right before he goes to the cross. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Imagine what would happen if we all stopped saying, what can you do for me? And started saying, what can I do for you? Mom, dad, son, daughter, brother, sister, neighbor. And so in this passage in John 13, on the very eve of his death, we see this remarkable thing happen. Now remember, think about Matthew 28. All authority has been given unto me, given unto me in heaven and on earth. You don't get anybody with any more authority than King Jesus. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. That's the position He's in. That's the authority He has. And what is one of the last things He does before He goes to the cross, which is another act of loving submission for our sakes, for those that he rules over. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. See, Pride again. And Jesus answered, If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Now skip down a few verses. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do 
as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Hear this last statement of Jesus. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's not just a nice story. We're to go home. We're to go out these doors and do them. This picture should always be before us, starting at our house with our spouse. Yeah, that one. Our children, our parents, our siblings, and spreading out from there. If you're not in the habit of washing the feet of the saints at your house, then I want you to pray today that God would fill you with his spirit. This is why we submit ourselves to one another, because Jesus taught us to do so, and he said this, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that love will be shown in this mutual submission. Let's pray. Father, you know that the one thing we resist the most is submission. We hate it because it strikes at our autonomy and we are fundamentally selfish. And we are selfish because we want to be our own God and not submit to you. In our moral blindness, we run toward our own destruction. But by your grace, you sent your Son to rescue us. He submitted to your mission, and here we are, the trophies of your grace. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we too might know the joy of submission to your will as we submit to one another in the fear of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. First Peter chapter 5, verses 5-7 through 7 says, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, because he cares for you. In submitting to one another, we show our gratitude to God. That's, how, that's what pleases him. Think about it. Parents, isn't it great when you see your, your children loving one another, playing well together, sharing, being kind to one another. There's a few things that give a parent more pleasure than to see that, to see that interaction between brothers and sisters. Well, that's what gives our Heavenly Father pleasure as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes and put it, puts it this way, if we really believe what we claim to believe as Christians, our supreme desire in life should be to show our gratitude to him, Do we really believe that he is the Son of God and that he came down from heaven to earth in order to save us, that he saves us not only by living his perfect life, but especially by going deliberately to the cross and taking our sins upon him and bearing our sins and their punishment, that he gave his life and that he died that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to God? The argument is that if we really believe that, Our supreme desire should be to please Him. If we really believe that, our, excuse me, 
would be to show our gratitude to him. He has done that for us. What does he desire of us? He asks us to keep his commandments in order that his name might be magnified and glorified amongst other people. So as we come to the table, this table of communion, where we have a common union in Christ, where we are reminded that we are one, we are one body, we are one family, and God has called us all to gather around his table now, and he is going to feed us. He's going to give us more gifts. He's going to take care of us and nourish us and send us out to go represent him wherever our little foxhole is, wherever our little mission field is, at our house, in our neighborhood, in our places of work.